No matter who you are, things in your life probably aren't going as expected, whatever that means. But the things you are doing right now, no matter what they are, that's your life. It's not a plan B. I'm your host, Madeline Mortensen, and you're listening to This Is Not A Backup Plan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, good morning friends. Welcome back to This Is Not A Backup Plan. I am so glad you're here. I hope you've been having a good July, that you haven't been getting too hot. I have finally had to turn on my air conditioning this week, which I feel very proud of myself. I went longer this year without air conditioning than I did last year, and I wasn't miserable or anything. I'm in a little like basement apartment. It still gets like some nice light, but it's surrounded by trees, so it just stayed really pleasant. And so, I don't know, this has been one of my better summers in a while, even though we are moving into the hotter months. This week, the interview I'm sharing with you is with my friend, Allie Turner-Camp. Allie and I met in Logan. I saw a event on Facebook that was like a girls' night out type thing, and I just went to it. And I found out that a lot of the people there kind of knew the hostess, but she had put it on Facebook as just like a public event. And so I met a lot of really nice people, and I just really clicked with Allie. And I did not remember this, but she told me, that in her phone, she has a note about me like telling her that I wanted to be her friend. And so I'm just really glad that I got out of my comfort zone, that I went somewhere and that I got to meet Allie. In this episode, we are talking about ambition and specifically how chronic illness can impact ambition. I'm really grateful for Allie's time and for how vulnerable she was at this conversation. I think this is such a key part of the conversation about ambition because it is not possible for ambition to be go, go, go all the time. If you're not someone who wants to or not someone who can be go, go, go all the time, that doesn't exclude you from ambition. Ambition can still be a very important part of your life and you can still be ambitious about things that are very important to you. And so I appreciate Ali's perspective on what it means to prioritize taking care of yourself and to focus your ambition so that you can do things that are important to you while protecting your body and its resources. I listened to a very good episode from the Work Appropriate podcast this week, which is hosted by Anne Helen Peterson, and they actually talked about disability in the workplace. They talked about accommodations. They talked about the benefits universal design has for everyone. They talked about how your rights regarding disability are protected in the workplace, and they talked about not only what disabled people can do to advocate for themselves, but what employers and managers can do to make sure that they are accommodating and meeting the needs of everyone on their team and being mindful of disability. So I'm going to link that in the show notes because I think it really fits in nicely with this conversation that I had with Ali. Before we get started, Ali, will you take a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I am Ali Turner-Camp. I am originally from small town farming community, Idaho. Uh, Now I'm living in Salt Lake City 
and I graduated from Utah State with a degree in history, and I'm currently pursuing my master's degree in library and information science. That's very cool. I just think libraries and librarians are so cool. And as I got older and understood how much education goes into that, whenever someone's doing that, I just think it's so interesting. I like want to hear all about it. So I just, I really love that. It's been so much fun. I didn't want to make the decision to go into grad school because it sounded horrific. But to be honest, it's been really enjoyable. I think I even like it more than my undergrad. It hasn't been, and I think it might be area specific, but so far it hasn't been nearly as difficult as my history undergrad was. That makes me so happy because my feeling of my master's degree was like, I was not prepared for this. This is harder than I imagined. And so I think it's nice to hear that people have a variety of master's degrees experiences and that there are different things you can consider depending on what you're interested in and depending on like the challenges you feel prepared for. Yeah, exactly. I feel so far a lot of my master's training has been on compassion and social services, surprisingly, because librarians have to double as social workers in most cases if you're going to work in public librarianship or even school librarianship. That's fascinating. That makes a lot of sense, but I would not have guessed that if someone was asking me what you do in getting a master's of library science. The other students in my cohort, quite a few of them are older than me. I feel like I'm the younger end of the spectrum, but many of them, this is their second career. So they've had primary careers as teachers and social workers and various other professions. And it's interesting to see, we do a lot of those Canvas group discussions and usually I hate those, but so far it's been really interesting because their perspectives are so different from mine because they have a lot more variety in the experiences that they've had so far. So then tell me a little bit about what has led you to the point where you're pursuing a master's in library science. What were you imagining you would do when you were growing up? What did you imagine being you would do as an adult and kind of what led you to deciding to pursue this career path? I actually wanted to be an artist. Most of my like teenager life And then my final year of high school in Idaho to graduate from high school, you have to complete a senior project. For our high school, at least, it was like 15 hours of this, like actively working on the project under a mentorship and then complete like an eight page paper or something. And so I wanted to major in art at Utah State. And so I did my project on photo restoration. And so I gathered all of these photos from our community and photoshopped out like scratches or places where you could see tape holding them (laughs) to like a scrapbook or rips or whatever. And I had an incredible mentor. He was great. But then I ended up writing my paper on George Eastman, who is the founder of Kodak. And was single-handedly responsible for making cameras available to the United States where just like regular middle-class people could have cameras and take pictures of their families. And it was like a biographical type of paper. 
and I got done with the project. And even though I had really loved the photo restoration aspect of it, I loved writing the biography. <laughs> and I hadn't expected that because I'd never written a paper that big before. And so after that project, I changed my major to history. And I did end up minoring in art, but it was a good choice. From age 18 onward, I wanted to be an archivist. And looking back, that's so strange because I don't know how I knew what an archivist was. I hope I have it written down somewhere, like in my teenage journal, because I don't think I'd ever been to an archives until I moved to Utah State, like after I had started school. So I, what a strange thing for a teenager to want to become. <laughs> I wonder if you watched a movie or read a book where someone did that. And it kind I of clicked. Have, I feel like I must have, because that's such a weird thing. And I told my parents and they were like, oh, maybe you'll get it figured out. I remember my mom telling people, even into college, where I had made up my mind, her telling people, oh, she doesn't know what she wants to do yet. And I was like, no, I do. <laughs> but oh. to be fair, like, no, she was right. Like, <laughs> it was just a weird thing of, I don't know how, no idea how I wanted to how I knew what that even was but so what was uh, it that appealed to you about being an archivist what was it that like drew you in that you thought this is what I want to do it's my sweet spot of I love to organize things <laughs> I love organizing things in a way that makes sense to people seeking that information out and I don't I have no idea what would have drawn it drawn me to it at the time but since getting experience in archival science, my last position was at the Church History Library on Temple Square. Uh, I did metadata enrichment as an intern. And basically what that is, we took pictures or letters and we would add item level descriptions about who the photo was of or where it was taken, when it was taken, who a letter was sent to, who it was from, people mentioned within letters, so that somebody searching for something, even if it was in a different location they were looking, they could find it. For example, I did the Brigham Young Jr. collection, and there was some wild stuff in there. <laughs> there was some wild stuff, which is part of the reason why I'm still so interested in it. There was a letter from some lady who was like, I got divorced and Brigham Young said we could get married, but lo and behold, he is dead now. <laughs> Can we still get sealed? <laughs> and apparently that's not uncommon, but so if you were, if this person was your ancestor you wouldn't know to look in the Brigham Young Jr. collection for something that she had written. So you would type her name into the search bar. And even though she doesn't have her own collection, her name would be embedded in this file. So you could still find it. And the thing that draws me to that is there were so many things that I found while working there where I would think if somebody knew that I had this information, it would mean the world to them. Not necessarily in that case. <laughs> In that case, it's, it's probably more just entertaining, but we would find pictures or 
information about people and missions or these stories that were just amazing. And I think, man, if this person's grandkids knew that this existed, it would help them know their ancestors so much better. That's so meaningful. And especially when you think about like ordinary people who no one would have a collection of their things that their lives have crossed in and out of other people's past. So like creating ways to find those things is so cool. Yeah, it's been really rewarding so far and I would love to keep working with it. So tell me what you have learned about yourself and like your passions and your ambitions and your goals as you've been going through like your educational and your career journey. Yeah, so I have always been a very highly ambitious person and I have had the attitude of since I should be able to do anything, I should do everything. (laughs) And that is not a particularly healthy mindset. So when I was in high school, around age 15, I began to develop narcolepsy, which is overly simplified as chronic sleep deprivation. So you're always tired, falling asleep. It seems to be at random, but it really is at specific moments in a day of if you're sitting too long or even at a stoplight sometimes, which is not great. But I went through high school and I slept probably every single day in school. Like I fell asleep every single day and nobody said anything about it because it's that stereotype of, oh, teenagers are so sleepy. And I didn't think anything of it because I believed that stereotype. And from then on to college and then on my mission, I had this idea that Maybe I was just a really lazy person. Like, (laughs) I don't have enough self-control to stay awake, sit and stay awake during a two-hour meeting or during class. Like, it was just something characteristically wrong with me. And it wasn't until I got diagnosed when I was probably 22 that I felt like maybe that wasn't true. And talking to people and realizing that the way that my character is has nothing to do with my inability to stay awake while I'm talking to people or while I'm in class or even at work. As my narcolepsy has gotten progressively worse from my teens, I am a lot more focused when it comes to ambition. So rather than trying to do everything, I've learned that what I should be able to do is irrelevant. And it's more important of what I can do and what makes sense for me to do. And so rather than striving to do absolutely everything that I can, I've got a very limited amount of energy that I can give to each day. And so I'm doing significantly less than I used to, but the goals and the projects that I do focus on are important to me. And so that ambition is still there, but I've given up the belief that I could do everything I want. And maybe that sounds a little bit sad, but 
it's been enough for me and I feel like I'm happy with the way that my life is. I don't think it sounds sad. I think that's a realization that people come to for a lot of different reasons. And I think like chronic illness or disability or stages of life or aging, like they really shift and they really impact the perspective of who we thought we should be when we were a kid. And we live in a society that does not recognize those things or respect those things or talk about those things in ways that would be really helpful and really supportive for everyone. And because of that, I imagine that like it was a challenging personal journey coming to that place of redefining that relationship and reevaluating what it meant for you. What was that process like? I feel like I'm still really knee deep in that process of learning my boundaries and respecting them. And I'm actually reading this book right now that I am obsessed with. It's called My Body and Other Crumbling Empires by Lindsay Medford, I think. It's a fairly new book, but it's all about coming to terms with chronic illness, especially as a woman and as a young person. And she makes the point of because we've grown up in this capitalistic culture we tend to use up our resources and throw them away. That's what we do. And as a result of that, most of us treat our bodies in the exact same way of I use myself up and I throw myself away. And when I've got to the point of using up all of my resources, I treat my body like a machine, like it needs to be fixed. It needs to, I need to take it into somewhere to to fix my body so it runs the way that I need it to, so I can continue to exploit my resources, basically. And the culture of healing is countercultural. The practice of healing is countercultural to what most of us intuitively feel like we should do. And by intuitively, I don't know. Conditioned. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I wrote down this quote from her because She just this book has really changed my mindset. And that sounds so corny. But (laughs) she makes this point. She says, we're taught from our early years that we should fear self indulgence more than self destruction. And that's such a wild truth of I'm afraid of taking too much time for myself. I'm afraid that in pulling myself away from work and from my home responsibilities and from any other responsibilities to catch up with myself or to heal from some of the chronic fatigue that I'm experiencing. I am being selfish and I'm not contributing. And so we tend to prioritize self-destruction and kind of masking it as, oh, look at me, I'm being productive, I'm being efficient, but it's not helpful, not healthy. I wish I could remember her name. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But there's a Black woman who runs, I mean, I know for sure it's a social media account. I can't remember what else there is, called the Nat Ministry. And I think she talks about rest as an act of resistance. And I think in this capitalistic society, especially for any group that's experienced like marginalization, so you think about like chronic illness and I think about ableism, like the realization that productivity is not tied to your worth, it's a huge act of resistance. And I really love what you were saying about no matter like the situation with your body, like you're still an ambitious person person that's still part of it so like choosing to focus that ambition I think is like a very beautiful act and like a beautiful thing to give yourself to say like I can still have this but 
to have this, I have to take care of myself first. Yeah, exactly. I wish I had known sooner the attitude from other of other chronically ill people. Like the things that I've learned from them have been so valuable. One of my very best friends also deals with chronic fatigue. Hers is from a different autoimmune disorder, but we still have similar symptoms. And the way that she is so kind to herself and the way that she's advocated for herself at her job and at school has been really inspiring to me that I feel like, oh, I can do that too. (laughs) I can set boundaries with people. Am I good at it? No, but I'm practicing. (laughs) And I'm just thinking too, like you can be ambitious about setting boundaries. You can be ambitious about being kind to yourself. Like the things that need to take precedence with chronic illness are not counter to ambitious. Like ambition can support those things that you need. What are like the biggest ways that your perspective of your career has changed in like the light of your diagnosis and kind of realization of what that means practically for you? I have come to the realization in the last handful of years that I might never be able to work a traditional nine to five office job. And there are some branches of archives where that is the reality. You do work a nine to five job and you sit at a desk. And I tried it recently. I was just given the opportunity for a couple months to work full time. And I was like, you know, that I'll try it. We'll see. Because I'd never done it before. Because I, I didn't think I could. And what practically what ended up happening was I was doing grad school full time at the same time. So I would go to my job from about eight to five every day. And then I would get home and I would absolutely crash and sleep from 5 to 8 p.m. And then I'd wake up and I would eat dinner and I would do homework and then do it all again the next day. And that's all I was doing was I would go to work and sleep and do my homework. And it just was like this constant cycle of I never did anything for myself. I didn't have a great schedule when it came to prioritizing homework. So I was always behind because I was always so tired. And so from that, I've just learned that I I might not be able to work a traditional office job. I think that COVID is the best thing that happened to people who are chronically ill, other than the autoimmunity part. That's awful. But like the aftermath of hybrid work and things like that has been incredible. Of if I need to stay at home and work, I can in most cases. And for school, I had a hard time staying awake for sometimes there's nearly two hour lectures where you're just sitting and writing notes. And I really struggled in those classes. And when everything switched to online and I could take all of my classes online and do it at my own time, at my own pace, I did so much better in school. And so I've just learned that's a limitation and a boundary that I need to set when I'm looking for new jobs is... It's important that I can have flexibility in my schedule, that I could work from 8 to 12 and then go home and take a nap (laughs) and work the rest of the day remote because it makes more sense to take an hour to take a nap rather than powering through the entire afternoon half-assing my work. I'd rather whole ass. (laughs) Whole ass my work. 
just think that the idea that we can reimagine our communities is very exciting. I wish we were better at it. Like, I think there have been some good things from COVID. I also think that I've unfortunately seen some, some groups like double down on like being in person. And it's like, no, no, no. What sucked about that wasn't hybrid. It was like the whole global crisis. That's what sucked. I don't think everyone needs to contribute to society to be like worthy. I think we're worthy in our existence. But I think that there are so many people who have a lot of things to give and who want to be a part of things and want to be doing certain things and saying and deciding that there's a wide variety of what like valuable contributions look like, I think is very powerful and very more honest and genuine in, in recognizing the, the gifts people have to give and the value that different people and their experience and their perspective and their gifts bring to us. Yeah. I think it's important to remind people that you don't have to be on the clock 24-7 doing good things to be good. I agree. And I really like that. I was just thinking earlier, you were talking about that a lot of library science is about like being compassionate and how you're taking care of people and communities. Do you feel like this experience like shapes how you think about that in your degree program and how you think about the different ways you might serve a community? Oh, absolutely. I feel like if anything having a chronic illness has made me so much more compassionate to the people around me because I can understand to some extent like the desperation people are feeling and the beautiful thing about libraries is it gives resources not just library material that I think most people think about like books or movies or CDs or access to like physical entertainment material but it's access to information via the internet and via people at the reference desk and it contributes to that information literacy that people can get information people have access to information that makes their lives better and they have access to services that make their lives better and I feel like having experience with kind of the desperation of meeting one of life's most vital <laughs> needs of sleep, I can understand how someone might feel of trying to meet a basic life need of food or shelter or information or safety. I would really love to use my information as a librarian to advocate for those people who are still trying to meet their basic needs. I love that so much. Ali, this has been such a good conversation. I've really valued hearing your perspective. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, roughly 60% of all of adults in the United States have a chronic illness. Like I'm not unique in any way, but it's really isolating feeling like you're the only one trying to make a good life and make a career out of your passions when you have a really limited amount of energy. I would really encourage people to join communities of people going through the same thing. That's been so helpful for me. I'm part of an Instagram group that shares ongoing like medical research and webinars about like my specific illness or disorder. And Part of that research is sharing resources that teach you how to advocate for yourself. And I've gone to that several times of 
how do I talk to my employer and tell them in a way that doesn't make me sound super needy, but communicates that I have needs that need to be met? How do I approach how do I approach my employer about the needs that I have? And how do I advocate for myself in a way that's firm, but not pushy? And what are things that I could ask for that would make my life easier at work? I wish I had done that at school. Also Reddit, surprisingly, has <laughs> been an incredible source for teaching me how to advocate for myself, as well as just like lifestyle things, because there's people from all over around the world that know exactly what I'm dealing with. And they share their experiences with medication and with their employers and with their coworkers and changes that they've made that have made their disorder a bit more manageable. And that has been like on a personal level, so helpful to me. I love that. Do you have social media handles you want to plug? I do have a Twitter account. Listen, this isn't anything special, but I think it's hilarious. And I'll do anything for a bit. (laughs) I have an account called Narc Dreams, like N-A-R-C Dreams. Part of narcolepsy is very vivid dreaming. And some people are like, oh, dreams are a beautiful revelation. And I learned from my dreams. And my dreams are like, I dreamt that my husband wouldn't stop eating waffles and it was becoming really problematic or I got third place in a big race that I was running and I can't even win in my dreams. Just goofy. I'll, I type, I write about things in my dreams. (laughs) I love that. I will say I am someone who like sometimes has a nice dream, but if I remember my dreams, it's lots of stuff coming back that's like uncomfortable. And it's lots of me like being like, why do I feel off? And it's like, oh, because I dreamed that last night. That's why I feel off. So I relate to that. Like those dreams feel a lot more my speed. Yeah. Like looking through my feed, it's (laughs) Steve Martin tried to murder me. I bit his finger off. That was, that's the post. That's the dream that I had. <laughs> I haven't posted on it in a while, but oh, I still think it's um, funny. I think it's delightful. Thank you so much for joining me. This was so much fun. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time, Ali, And thank you so much to you for joining me. If you like this podcast, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can find this podcast on Instagram at not a backup plan. You cannot find me on threads because I'm tired and you might find me on Twitter, but super unlikely. If you would like to communicate with me, if you'd like to share podcast ideas, you can do that by messaging the Instagram account. You can also email me madelineK at gmail.com. I hope you have a great week. I will chat with you again in two weeks. And in the meantime, remember, this is your life. It's not a plan B.